Real talk. How many nights have you spent up recently worried that AI is just going to take your job? That's today's big question, and my guest is Dr. Muhammad Al-Qurashi. Almost three years before ChatGPT and New Bing really hit the scene, Muhammad showed up to a conference excited to share his life's work on protein folding, one of the biggest problems in biology. But Muhammad quickly discovered that DeepMind, or to be more specific, AlphaFold, had solved the whole damn thing. Welcome to Important Not Important. My name is Quinn Emmett, and this is science for people who give a shit. In our weekly conversations, I take a deep dive with an incredible human like Muhammad, who is working on the front lines of the future to build a radically better today and tomorrow for everyone. Along the way, we'll discover tips, strategies, and stories you can use to get involved and become more effective for yourself, your family, your city, your company, and our world. Muhammad is an assistant professor in the Department of Systems Biology and a member of Columbia's program for mathematical genomics, where his work at the intersection of machine learning, biophysics, and systems biology. Listen, obviously all this is more important and more relevant than ever before. Literally, it changes every week. So I'm excited to share this conversation from 2019 or a million years ago. The world and AI and everything is moving so quickly, but it's messy. And in many places, it's moving faster than our societal and ethical guardrails can keep up. As always, you can reach me for questions at questions at importantnotimportant.com. Our guest today is Dr. Mohammed Al-Qureshi. And together we're going to ask, hold on a fucking second. Did AI just make me and my life's work obsolete? Uh, Mohammed, welcome. Thank you for having me. For sure. We're pumped. Thanks for being here. Um, uh, let's get it going by uh, just telling everybody who you are, Muhammad, and what you do. Sure. So I'm a systems biology fellow at Harvard Medical School, and I work on computational biology, uh, specifically on something called the protein folding problem. Now, my own, before we really dig into this, my reference to protein folding, my first understanding of it was when I feel like it was in the 90s, and it was when, is that when they first launched that thing to where you could like use your desktop while it was sleeping oh, to, oh, to yeah, process. Yeah. Absolutely. To was that fake or was that? <laughs> <laughs> no, no, it wasn't fake. I, I think it was late nineties probably. Uh, but no, no, it was, was the real deal. It was the real deal. Um, Fast. Yeah. Yeah. They, they used, uh, they used PlayStation threes at the time. I think that was the hot thing. Oh yeah, man. Whoa. Yeah. Oh yeah. Yeah. Um, to be clear, there was no downtime for my PlayStation three, <laughs> my desktop where I was supposed to be doing computer for your homework for sure. But PlayStation 3, no, no, no. Uh, all right, Brian, let's do this. Uh, let's do it indeed. Um, so, Mohammed, what we're going to do uh, is uh, just go over some context uh, for our very fun question here today uh, and then get into some uh, uh, some questions that are uh, very action-oriented that get to the uh, the core of why we should all care about uh, you and what you're doing. Does that sound good? Yeah, sounds great. All right. So, Mohammed, we'd like to start with one important question to set the tone of things. Uh, instead of saying, tell us your whole life story, not that we're not interested in that, uh, everybody else does it. So we'd like to ask, why are you vital to the survival of the species? <laughs> okay. I encourage you to be bold, be That's honest. A, a very heavy question. Um, <laughs> let's see. Well, I mean, to, to be perfectly honest, I don't think what I'm doing right now is, is vital to the survival of the species. But <laughs> what I do think is true, and, and it's not just me, but I think that the, the work that, sort of, that I'm doing and other people like me are doing, I think will be, I hope will be pretty important, um, certainly in a few decades from now. And, and I, there's sort of two, two angles to this. One aspect of it is, is this question of, of synthetic, synthetic biology, of, of being able to engineer things, engineer organisms that do stuff like you know, clean up the environment, clean up the ocean, or generate energy, or that sort of thing. And I think we're, we're very far away from that right now. But I suspect that the kind of technologies that we're developing today will be sort of foundational uh, to, to sort of enable the synthetic biology. And so I think, you know, it's, it's unclear right now whether, whether things like climate science will ultimately, or climate change, will be sort of impacted by synthetic biology. Mm -hmm. um, but it's conceivable that, you know, 30 or 40 years from now, uh, it will prove to be sort of one of the key the key technologies for that. So th that's the short term. <laughs> um, if you're interested, I can give you the long-term version as well. 
Yeah, uh, let's do it. I, I would love to hear the long term of why you're vital to the survival of the species. Uh, pretty, I mean, pretty I big brought, question, Brian, Brian's already like <laughs> chipping away a monument to you. Please continue. <laughs> well, no, I just thought I, I should be very clear. It's not, it's not silly, not just me. I think um, I'm speaking about the field as a whole. I think there's a lot of interesting things going on in the kind of, in the kind of work I do and other, other people do, which is building kind of machine learning models for, for molecular biology. And, and what I think, what I think is, is particularly exciting looking further out, maybe in a century from now, is that, you know, on the one hand, you have artificial intelligence creating machines that are very intelligent. Um, and on the other hand, you have sort of bioengineering and biotechnology, perhaps allowing humans to either sort of integrate with machines or sort of be able to kind of be augmented with machines. And what's exciting to me about this is that, you know, for, for, the, for the entirety of our history, of our, you know, our existence since 20,000 years ago, what have you, we've, we've basically been very much limited by our biology, right? We, we see, we hear, we, we, we smell, um, but that's, that's been it. And what I think is very exciting about the future um, is that we, we may be able to sort of rewrite the way we experience the world. We may be able to sort of redefine what it means to be human in, in sort of an experiential sense. And, and that to me is, is, again, it's a very futuristic thing, but I think it's something that sort of, it's not just about survival, it's about uh, looking forward to the future and thinking about what kind of species we can become. And that's very exciting to me. It's it sounds and we've talked about this before a lot like what Brian, how Brian spends his day. <laughs> I'm constantly just sitting around thinking how can we redefine <laughs> what it means to be a human being. <laughs> uh, that's awesome. Well, I mean, in a world where we desperately need more forward thinking and and more practical action towards forward thinking. I mean, we like to say you know the whole fucking climate change thing is such a ticking time bomb. But if we can not necessarily solve it because that's a hell of an ask at this point, but slow it down and maybe at some point start to reverse it. There is so much incredible stuff going on simultaneously right now that's laying the foundation for, for truly some, some paradigm shifting advances uh, when it comes to technology or like you said, biology or space, for example. I mean, this, the, the whole like, oh, we can send a, a reusable rocket into space a week after we used it, which sound, sounded insane 10 years ago, yeah. and now we do it every week, is going to be all for shit if, if everything's on fire. But God, man, if we, if we can just get there, some of this stuff uh, might, just be, might just be pretty amazing. No, no, absolutely. And, and, and many of these technologies are, are sort of double-sided. Right? They have, they, I mean, take, take machine learning, take artificial intelligence. Right? On the one hand, there is a fear, a very viable fear that may obsolete you know, human jobs and will sort of result right. in a chaos. On the other hand, I mean, I think... If, if we can make it work, it could allow us to sort of solve all these various problems, right? including climate change and so on. So it's, it's sure. it, it, the question is going to be, you know, what wins? And, 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 and can, we, can we do things in time to, to sort of ultimately sort of have a good outcome? And, and that's, that's by no means a guaranteed uh, thing. But, but I, I, <laughs> yeah. I, I do think that um, there's a lot of exciting things that, a lot of exciting things that are happening. And, and I think the future can be bright if we're, if we're sort of smart enough and, and, and cooperate together. I love it. I mean, I feel like we should just end it right there, but, but I'm <laughs> excited to dig into the rest of this. All right. So some, sometimes this little contextual minute I do uh, is pretty wonky. Sometimes it's more philosophical. I'm going to attempt to really kind of define because I feel like so much of the issue these days is like artificial intelligence is incredible. And even people who are tangentially in on it totally misunderstand where we are or what that even means, um, much less people who aren't paying attention to it day to day. So uh, this is all to say, Muhammad, please just jump in and as rudely as you can interrupt me and tell me how wrong I am as I kind of give everybody the backstory on, on, on what it means and where we are. Sure. Does that work for you? Uh, of course. Please. Okay. So just to, again, lowest common denominator here is, is, is the goal. So that everyone's on the same page for a conversation, just revisiting uh, some, some definitions and nomenclature around AI or, or artificial intelligence. First, AI means artificial intelligence. What does that mean? Uh, more or less layman's terms, like a capability for intelligence of some subject matter from something that isn't organic, right? Not a human or a mammal or a fish or something that's otherwise alive. How does that artificial system get intelligent? Uh, quote unquote. Well, for a long time, it kind of meant um, we give it a shitload of pre-programmed rules right? Yeah. And, uh, and a ton of data. And then the system in question that you've now built uses those rules to 
execute a program or, or calculate some now relatively rudimentary equation. Is that correct? Um, yeah, yeah. I mean, there, there are some, there's some nuance. So I think decades Please. ago, people, people were very much interested <laughs> in trying to build these expert systems. So this whole idea of like rules, right? Can you, can you encode what we know about the world into mm-hmm. these systems and, and then make them intelligent that way? It's almost like teach them how to be intelligent. Mm-hmm. Um, or rather sort of build them from scratch uh, with, with intelligence. I mm-hmm. think what's happened in the last uh, 15 to 20 years, there's been this shift toward machine, toward machine learning. So, so that mm-hmm. the idea there is that you're not sort of hard coding the rules, but instead, as you alluded to, providing the, the system with data and it can learn about the world from this data. So there's kind a of shift. Like, yeah. Right. And people have used the example of, I mean, I don't know why this didn't make more sense earlier. I mean, of course, we didn't have the computing power for it, but it, it, it's as if kind of how a child learns, right? Exactly. So deep learning essentially uses these specialized algorithms that use multiple layers, right? Or or neural networks, as they call them, to, from what I understand, gradually extract more, for instance, uh, if we're looking at pictures of faces, extract more higher level uh, features from from a face. So the first layer might do the edges of the picture and the next, the the, the uh, background or the outline of the face and the next, the nose, et cetera, et cetera. And then it does that on a million other images until it finds every picture with blue-green eyes. Is, is that a terrible version uh, of how it works? No, no that's, that's reasonable. I mean, and, and, and so you hit at the, the key feature of this, which is that it's trying to sort of build a representation. It's trying to build a way mm-hmm. that it can think about the problem. Mm-hmm. And, and the way it does that, it sort of takes something complicated like a human face, right? And sort mm-hmm. of breaks it down into, into smaller components, into eyes and noses and, and then edges and so on. So it's, the key thing is that it's not only learning, but it's sort of learning to learn. It's learning to sort of organize its own thoughts, or thoughts maybe is too strong in a word, but, but its mm-hmm. own representation so that it's sort of amenable to, mm-hmm. to be able to find patterns in the data. Gotcha. And, and so it seems to have, and one of these seems to be advancing pretty, well, they both are pretty quickly, but one kind of came about, I think, without people realizing. One is, um, you know, finding uh, um, images of very tiny tumors in lung cancer uh, by assessing millions of pictures of, of lung cancer. And the other is to actually um, pr- produce something. So we, we're seeing this stuff with, with uh, deep fakes, uh, mm-hmm. where it can actually, it you know, or these pictures, someone will post a gallery of 30 pictures online and say, hey, these aren't actually real people. These are all drawn by artificial intelligence because of everything it's learned. For, for our case, uh, what's interesting from what I understand is that deep learning can either be supervised or unsupervised. And I, I think from what I understand, uh, that is, and again, that is such an important point. From what I understand, it's super limited. Um, <laughs> with, uh, it applies to everything from ice cream to artificial intelligence. This is sometimes where there's some big revelation at the end and the scientists who operate this intelligence go, this is cool. We don't totally know how it got to this conclusion. Kind of like a black box, as they say. So in these, we don't really teach it rules, right? Um, we just, like you said, throw a, a, a fuck down of semi-related data until it finds cat or tumor. So in right. some cases, and again, this is cutting a huge number of corners, and I like how you said there's some nuance, which, yeah, <laughs> of, I mean, of course, it might be able to start to find those tumors faster or more accurately than, say, a trained radiologist, right. or sometimes seconds faster or years earlier than a pair of human eyes, and sometimes better than a fleet of trained radiologists. And that's where we start to see things like we have this seemingly this paradigm shift of a result, right? And it gets published in a respectable scientific or medical journal. And then a science-focused blog cites it in a post. And then the New York Times science section picks it up. And all of a sudden, we have this mass media headline that says something like, AI beats radiologists at lung cancer analysis with 94% success rate. Radiology's canceled. Go home, everybody. The machines <laughs> win. We cured cancer. To be clear, that's not what's happening. Uh, it's not the full story. And I love that you, before we even started recording two days ago, corrected me on just our uh, just our intro to this, which which I'm is what I'm excited to, to get into because it is a tool that we are working alongside, at least for now. And it's also important to notice that these are again emphasize these are very specialized. Um, yeah, yeah the, absolutely. And I mean, the, yeah, it can't drive a car, right? The same one that finds a lung tumor can't drive a car. Or, or set the temperature in your house or water your flowers or play Go, right? 
Um, no, certainly not. And in fact, I mean, I think there's almost a sort of a linguistic definition now where, where AI, or linguistic distinction, where AI is sort of kind of considered this sort of, you know, fairly specific, fairly uh, circumscribed technology that's really application focused, while something like AGI, artificial general intelligence, mm-hmm. is meant to refer to uh, something which is kind of more aspirational uh, that can that can do something like you know multiple tasks and sort of go around sure. the world and but but that's really that's really much more of a kind of a dream right now. The, the sure. successes we've had recently are much more in the sort of narrow AI that's that's right. uh, as you described is very specialized. So, uh, but the ones that are narrow, some of them are just making incredible jumps, right? Uh, and sometimes uh, it, it it might seem as if it might, or some people might say it makes your life work uh, seem a little bit uh, obsolete to your profession. So, Mohammed, why don't you just tell everybody kind of how you got roped into this? What exactly happened with 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 uh, your profession and DeepMind to finish getting us up to speed? Hey, everyone, it's Quinn, your host and the founder of Important Not Important. I'd like to take a quick minute to tell you about the INI or any, whatever we're calling it these days, membership and community. It's a gathering place, really, for our most dedicated shit givers. A place to connect and learn from one another and to have access to me outside of the newsletter and this podcast. We started it last year and it's grown to hundreds of shit givers from all kinds, from around the globe. I'm talking about teachers and investors, students, electricians, journalists, artists, scientists, and policymakers, and and more. Members get exclusive access to our daily news homepage, which is very cool, and to much more top-of-mind weekly articles, research, and tools that you can use and to stay ahead of the game, member-sourced action steps, twice-monthly book and culture recommendations that have nothing to do with the end of the world, virtual events, and of course, the membership Slack channel. Look, so many people come to us asking, what can I do? And we think we do a pretty good job of answering that question and providing context for the answer. But the best answers and the best perspective really come from the community, a wide-ranging community. And we would love for you to be a part of it, to feel supported yourself, and to contribute to discussions and actions alike. And of course, by becoming a member, you're directly supporting our work here and ensuring that we get to keep doing it. So if you'd like to learn more, head to importantnotimportant.com. And if you're already a reader, you can just hit the upgrade button at the top. If you're not, go ahead and subscribe for free and you'll see the option to become a member at whatever level works best for you. And as always, you can always find the link to become a member right in your show notes. So thanks for listening. And as always, thanks for giving a shit. Back to the show. Sure, sure. So, so like I said earlier, I work on this thing called protein folding, which is a, a field that has to do, I mean, we can go into what that means later on, but basically it's this field that has to do with trying to predict the shape of proteins. And this is a field that's been going on for, for decades. And I would say maybe around five or six years ago, people started thinking about using machine learning, using artificial intelligence very seriously in applying it to this problem. Um, and and th- th- that's you know, that's that's impacted the field. That's made some progress. Uh, but what's happened very recently, last uh, last December, in fact, is there was this competition that happens every two years, where people get together and try to to, to do these sort of predictions. And for the first time, there was a there was an entry from an industrial lab from from a, a from a research group called DeepMind that's that's part of Google or Alphabet. And uh, they they decided to participate in this competition, and they in fact uh, did quite a lot better than, than anybody else in in, in this uh, in this competition. Um, and what was interesting about it is that this group this group's expertise was primarily artificial intelligence. They, they did not really have they, they had they had one or two people who had some some biochemistry experience, but by and large their their experience their expertise was largely in, in machine learning, while all the academic groups. Uh, were, were almost the opposite. You know, they, they, they all had sort of deep expertise in biochemistry, but but they were not necessarily machine learning experts. They, they were sort of uh, they had a, they, you know they're they just learning the ropes in a way in machine learning, mm-hmm. and and that sort of inversion uh, I think was something of a, of a surprise that that suddenly if you if you have sort of really deep talent in machine learning you could tackle a new problem 
uh, or, or tackle a problem that you're not familiar with and make a lot of progress, uh, even even more so than groups that have been working on it for a very long time. And, and I think that that surprised a lot of people and, and perhaps made them a little bit uneasy. I think we uh, I think we shared something about that actually when when that news was coming out in our in our newsletter. It was very interesting. So could you, you you alluded to this, but could you could you just uh, take a quick pause and, and tell us exactly what protein folding is, why it's important, and I guess why you work on it? Sure. So uh, just again going to the very basics, proteins. That's are very, where we live. Yeah, the very the, basics. It's a good, it's a good place to live. Uh, so. Proteins are basically the kind of the molecular machines in our body. That anything that anything that does anything in your body is typically made out of proteins. Uh, so they're, they're like little nano machines that that stretch, that flex, that extend, that twist, and so on and so forth. The protein folding problem has to do with the predicting the shape of these proteins. So every protein is typically made out, out of a sort of a chain of molecules, and we know what that chain is, typically for any given protein. So, so it's easy to, to sort of know the sequence that makes up a protein. Um, but how that sequence turns, turns into a three-dimensional shape, that's a very difficult question. That's something that we've been trying to do for almost half a century. And we don't really yet have an algorithm that does that reliably. We could experimentally go and determine that structure, that shape, but that's very expensive. It takes probably $100,000 to do it per protein. Okay. Um, and so being able to develop an algorithm that can do that would be very useful because it would allow us to, uh, in principle, determine the shapes of all proteins, uh, which then would allow us to do things like simulate a cell, perhaps, or begin to simulate a cell, which is, which is what I started out with in the beginning, talking about synthetic biology and trying to engineer um, and engineer biological organisms. Mm-hmm. Okay, I think that's super, that's super helpful. Yeah. So this is, uh, feel free to just literally call me a dumbass. Uh, are you, are you talking to the, me too? Or just Mohammed? Yeah. Can I no, call Brian, you? That does not <laughs> apply to you. <laughs> Got I it. told you. Got it. Uh, this is professional. <laughs> so does that, well, I mentioned at the very beginning, uh, when, when my Windows 95 computer and my PlayStation 3 were cranking on protein folder, <laughs> folding, like when, when my PlayStation 3 was the original DeepMind, right. were we trying to still accomplish the same thing? Um. But, yes, what was that yes, but, but, but there was actually quite, there's a quite, quite a bit of difference. Um, <laughs> it's like I mean, the it, understatement it, of the century. <laughs> well, it's a bit of a technical distinction. That's why you know I'm, I'm hesitant to sort of say it's a you know huge difference. But but the, the difference basically is um, with, with the pro, with the you know with the thing that you're talking about from whatever 20 years ago, uh, which was called folding at home. Uh, the, yes. There, what that was is it was really trying to not only see, not only predict the shape of the protein but to actually simulate the folding process itself. So, so in your body, each pro, the protein is initially, each protein is initially made in sort of a, in an unstructured form. And then it, it sort of dynamically, it, it literally over time takes on its final three-dimensional shape. And really mm-hmm. what folding at home was doing, and it still is doing, is trying to simulate that entire process. What, what I'm describing now is, is sort of a shortcut. It's saying, give me the sequence and I'll give you the structure. And I, I'm not going to worry about how, how we go from A to Z. I'll just give you the final result. So it's, it's a technical distinction, but, but it's an important one. Wait, does folding at home still exist? Yeah. Oh, that's so exciting. Oh, wow. absolutely. I mean, I have more than a PlayStation 3 now, but that, I did love my PlayStation 3. It was a good um, one. In fact, I think this is kind of an interesting factoid, but I think collectively, it is the largest supercomputer in the world. That's so cool. Wow. Yeah. Does it become Skynet at some point? Hopefully not. I mean, yes, right? right? Oh. Yeah. Well, well, so that's an example of a very specialized type of algorithm, right? So it probably won't become Skynet. No. <laughs> <laughs> probably. Probably, <laughs> he says. Good, good. This is great. This is all going so great. You can great. almost sleep, sleep uh, safely at night. I don't sleep. It's fine. Don't worry. <laughs> I, I know too much. <laughs> hey, so can we, let's talk about uh, misconceptions and hype a little bit. If you were writing, you know, these... Uh, news article headlines. How, you know, how would you frame what happened that day and, and what's happening every day? I would probably say something like substantial progress made in the protein structure prediction problem by industrial research lab. Yeah, I mean that's that sounds so much more correct. And also at the same time, you understand like why the uh, whoever's writing for the New York Times wouldn't write that. Of course. Huh. So. I want to get into, and again, like we've talked about, there, there, there are more and more of these specializations every day, right? There's so many businesses uh, uh, across every spectrum 
that are that are building a version of artificial intelligence into their business. It, it feels like everybody from the the post from the postal service, you know, to to Uber to protein folding are, are building this in. So, yeah, I, I mean, I, I should say, I actually, I do think this is one of the fairly extraordinary and almost generational uh, moments in science. I mean, there's only a handful of these things that I think can point to, say, in the 20th century, these kind of transformations. And I, I think this is one of them. So, I mean, on the one hand, I think there's a lot of hype. But on the other hand, I mean, I, I, you don't see sure. these sorts of things more than once or twice in your lifetime. So, this, I mean, in, in, the, in the broader thing, now, I'm not talking about just protein folding. I'm talking about what, what you're just referring to, the fact that yeah, sure. machine learning is just revolutionizing so many different fields. It, it's really quite extraordinary. Oh, yeah. it, it's, it, I mean, look, I have no doubt it's up there with the printing press as far as the liberation of, of data, right? But when we're talking about practicalities and, and we, you know, we try not to, we try to really talk about how something is affecting everybody now or in the next 10, 20 years, right? So yeah. that's that way they can kind of take action. And, and to be clear, as we've alluded to, and I want to dig into more how it's more of a tool for you than it is replacing you. Um, there are a very large number of very common jobs that are going to be replaced by either a version of inter- artificial intelligence or automation. And sure. in many cases, artificial intelligence isn't a helpful new tool for a mortgage loan officer. It might have started off that way, and now it's actually the new mortgage loan officer. Yeah. Bye bye. Jeff, right? So a decade from now, all indications are that, you know, the first sort of autonomous driving, as much as we've realized how much further we really off our consumer driving, um, is probably going to be the, the long haul truck driver, right? Yeah. Because highways are so much less complicated. Um, the problem is, is, is truck driver is the most common job in most states in America from FedEx drivers to, to actual long haul truckers, it's something like four to six million jobs. Um, my question is then turning it back is why is your profession different? Why does AI remain a tool while you're still running the show? I mean, to be clear, I think you know, in the limit of infinite time, uh, you know, we'll all be obsolete. So, oh sure, no, yeah, we're all turning yeah. into like beams of light at some point, <laughs> yeah, no yeah, doubt. Yeah. yeah. So, so there's there's Hopefully, nothing fundamentally Jesus. different about, about right, my right, field right. than say any other field. Right. I, I think that th- I would say there's maybe sort of two general things though that that may play a role in, in some fields versus other fields. One is just how kind of technically challenging, or you know, how how much sort of scientific or just technical expertise you need. I mean, machines are are good at certain things like pattern recognition, um, but but they're, but they're not yet good at like reasoning or you know logic. Those sorts of, so those sorts of things. And so, if, if a field requires a lot of that kind of technical skill, it, it's just machines just can't yet do it. It's as simple as that. And it's not clear that they can do it in the next 10, 20 years. They they might, but but we there's no there's no clear path that we could see from where we are today to to where that is. So that's one class of jobs that I would say is is at least for the foreseeable future, uh, someone, somewhat immune. The other is one that sort of requires a lot of human interaction, right? So, so things that, I mean, you mentioned ideology earlier. So, I mean, you know, part, of a, part of a geologist's job is to interpret, uh, you know, data. Uh, but a lot of it has nothing to do with that, right? It has to do with interacting with patients, trying to, under, trying to sort of mm-hmm. understand symptoms and diagnosis and that sort of thing. And that, that is not going away because it's, it's, that's, that's going to require a lot more development, right, before, before a machine could, could emulate the human interaction uh, component. So, so mm-hmm. those are the last, I would say, sort of two classes of jobs that are quite different than, than say, something like truck driving where, where like you, like you uh, described, may, may potentially be obsolete in you know, something like 10 years from now. There's a really interesting, and to be clear, much of the human conditions in a bad way these days. Um, so hopefully we don't replicate it perfectly. Um, but there's this really interesting story, and I'm going to mangle it. I'll try to find the headline for our show notes. Um, uh, some guy built for you know so much of an issue with these huge elderly populations in in Japan, and uh, that's growing in the U.S. Once the boomers actually get to elderly and, and, uh, for instance, France, um, is, is how isolated they are and the loneliness issues and ignoring that for one second, uh, somebody was trying to deal with just, just the general day-to-day care that they often need if they're not in sort of a bigger facility that's, that's built for that. If, you know, cause a lot of these folks have a hard time 
uh, or, or will refuse to leave a house they've been in for 30 years. I know it happened with sure. my grandparents. Yeah. Um, so he built these little robots that like drive around their house and it has a screen and they can, it can check in on them or they can ask for something or they can call a family member or whatever. And very quickly they realized the number one thing the robot was being used for was for these elderly customers slash patients uh, were calling customer service all the time, all the time. And it was literally just to have somebody to talk to. Yeah. And I, I think that's a little, I, I hope I'm interpreting correctly what you were alluding to with, with radiologists and the, and, and the medical profession as, as far as like a general practitioner, which is the tools are going to be even more and more useful and more accurate and more helpful and save so many lives or, or find new treatments or ways of identifying things or tying different medicines together that, you know, we might not have thought uh, that would go together, like how, you know, Viagra was an accident, penicillin was an accident, things like this. Yeah. But, but that, that human experience is, is not going away. And maybe it can free that uh, profession to become or liberate that profession to become a little more centered towards that, you know, where you can go to a doctor and be like, he's a genius, his bedside manner sucks, yada, yada, but at least he saved my life. Yeah. Well, maybe we can focus on people that just are, are better at that part of it and are relieved from at least wondering, like, am I keeping up with the latest medical journals on what this thing might be? Yeah, that's actually interesting. And I, to be honest, I think, so I think you're quite right. But, but this is something that I suspect will be true across a variety of fields, in fact. I mean, even I mean, you mentioned earlier these sort of generative models, things that could generate, you know, fake, deep fakes, like pictures of people or what have you. Uh, but there have also been, you know, there's these sort of interesting developments where they allow you to sort of take a, a very rough sketch of, of a, sort of a landscape and turn it into a high-resolution image, right? And, and that, you know, I think there was a, there's an episode in Star Trek some, some number of years ago that I think had, had this sort of idea, right? Where well, Let's do this. Yeah, well, yeah right, <laughs> it's really interesting. Right? Is, is that, you know, as a creative person, you, maybe you don't need to, uh, you don't need to develop your skills to the point of getting, you know, every every sort of fine line correct. You just you just need to have sort of the vision, the idea, the, the creative spark, and then the machine can sort of take that all the way to a finished product, to a to a sort of a beautiful uh, image or, or you know orchestra, or what have you. So it's, sure, uh, I, I think this is going to be true across a, a wide range of fields where we're going to, in some ways, become more general. We're going to sort of be responsible for the, the high level decision making. Uh, mm-hmm. but, but the machines will be responsible for, for kind of executing all the way down to kind of the, the fine-grained details. Uh, and, 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 and I think medicine will, will be in the sense of that. Having and, said, that's, so just one other bit. The, in yeah. the medicine case, there's one other aspect, though, which is that I also think, that this almost sounds kind of silly, but there's the kind of the mechanical Please. aspect, just the, 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 the fact that you have a human coming in and being able to touch, being able to, to, to measure, to, you know, th- these sorts of things are actually fairly difficult, uh, surprisingly, in some ways, for machines to do. You know, o- robotics is still very much in its infancy. And so the, the mechanical aspect of a human is something that, th- that, that may prove to be surprisingly uh, doable. Oh, sure. I mean, look at, look at the Mars rovers. They're incredible feats of engineering and ingenuity, but they drive about 10 feet a day okay. and, <laughs> you know, can barely pick things up can't bring anything back you know we could we could walk that far in in five minutes and accomplish what all these rovers have done in 25 years (laughs) Um, but we'd also have to provide oxygen and radiation shielding and all that shit right there's there's pros and cons to both and i thought about what you were saying too about again using it more as a tool i was reading something the other day about how there's always this i remember when i first started working and everyone's like oh you have to go to business school and half the people were going no you can learn everything you need on the job and the, the dichotomy there and, and people, there's this argument now about, mm-hmm. is it better going forward for training people of the jobs of the future and the problems of the future and things like that to be more of a generalist or to be a specialist? And there was an argument as to why being a generalist would be helpful because so many of our problems um, are interconnected in so many ways. And we're finding out more and more of that every day. Um, why do we have cancer? Oh, it turns out our air has been polluted for 40 years, you know, et cetera, et cetera. That, knowing more, knowing a little less about more things, but knowing that there's a tool that can go deep for you should you want to investigate some of these things or tie things together. It seems like we finally have that asset for the first time, perhaps. Yeah, I agree. And I think, absolutely. I, I think the journalists will, I mean, 
there's probably will always be room for a small fraction of the population to be sort of ultra specialized. And these are the probably the people sure. who are super, super smart and you know, extremely, but, but I think, I think for the, for the, for most of us, being a journalist will prove to be a sort of more viable kind of path forward. And it's even, you know, even things like, you know, soft skills, human skills, those sorts of things. I mean, I think it's interesting. I, mean, I always wonder about kind of the trajectory of human history. I mean, I think, you know, we've, we've certainly through the 20th and 19th centuries uh, started placing more and more emphases on, on, on developing sort of very, very specialized skills, right? On sort mm-hmm. of, you know, the, just the, the way even society bifurcated into these sort of specialized uh, vocations. But, but I just, and, and so it, it's sort of interesting thinking about what, what, what that was like a thousand years ago. I think that was not the case. And, and I suspect we'll see a, a, a reversal where, where being, being sort of a well-rounded human being um, will, will prove to actually be kind of a, an asset because you're able to kind of navigate so these complex terrains much more effectively uh, and, and just rely on, on machines to kind of take care of the, the nitty-gritty. Oh, wow. I mean, hopefully, right? And yeah, of course. I mean, we're always going to need specialists like you who can actually interpret the data the first time to make it something that the generalists can understand and operate under. Um, yeah, yeah, but actually, I mean, if I were to take a guess, it's, it's very hard to predict, but if I were to take a guess, I suspect that people like me will probably be obsolete before the generalists. I mean, I, it, again, it's hard to say, but I think over a 50-year timeline, say, I, I think, you know, I'm, a, I'm more likely to be obsolete than someone who's sort of more of a, of a generalist. I hope you're never obsolete, to be clear. <laughs> this is great news for me. I'm definitely a generalist. <laughs> that's, that's probably the ge- most gentle way to describe what we do here. <laughs> um, so, uh, go, go ahead, Brian. Oh, yeah. Uh, I was just going to, if, you know, say I'm a young person interested in doing what you do. Who wants who, to be a specialist? Who wants to be a specialist, despite what you just said about the obsolescence? <laughs> uh, why is there hope? You know, tell us why there's hope and why I should why I should still be excited. Uh, wait, sorry, hope in the sense that like why this is interesting to do, or hope why why there's still a, a viable career path. Both. I, I mean, I think it's uh, of course going to remain interesting because we still have so far to go, despite yeah. everything you've done. Not knocking your accomplishments, <laughs> more like. Because of the tools that are now available and because of, I mean, having so far to go means we still have so much opportunity, but yeah, why, why is it, I guess if I'm understanding it right, why is it viable as a career profession, if anything more, more viable and exciting than it was before? Is, is that yeah. true or false? Well, yeah, no, I, I, to, to be sure. I mean, we don't know. I think what's happened in the last 10 years in artificial intelligence is amazing, but, uh, but we still don't have a clear path forward from where we are today to sort of artificial general intelligence. So, so what I was talking to you about earlier, you know, in terms of logic, in terms of reasoning, these sorts of skills, they're still very much the purview of, of, of humans. I mean, we, we, there's no, we don't have any competition really yet. Uh, and it's not clear that that's going to change in, in 20, 30 years. So, so I mean, th- that, that's, that's the primary reason why I would say it's like a viable career path. I mean, that we don't, uh, there's no machine right now today that can sort of do what I do or, or what people like me do. And I, and I you know, it's, it's not, there's no, there's no sort of, uh, the writing is not on the wall in the sense that, oh, yeah, we can just see that we can scale things up and, and get to a point where machines can do what we do. Um, but my statement earlier was more just, it's, it's, a relative, it's a relative statement, just saying mm-hmm. one or the other, I would suspect that the, the, spe- that the specialist would sort of you know, go the way of the dodo before the generalist. But, but I, it, it's, I, I think you know, if, if I were advising somebody today to, to start you know, college or high school, I would still, and if they have the aptitude and the interest, I would still very much tell them to go into this, this space because I think the, the upshot is amazing. I mean, it, it, there's so much that, that, we, that we still have to do. And if we succeed, like I was talking about earlier, I mean, I think we could, we could really, uh, we could make life a lot better for a lot of people. Doesn't sound terrible. <laughs> um, yeah, it's pretty <laughs> admirable. Yeah. Uh, h- how should I be proactively trying not, to... Not you, Brian. Yeah, no, me. Oh, sure. Okay. <laughs> Go for it, champ. Uh, <laughs> trying to engage these new tools and uh, disciplines to, to, to get ahead and to, um, to make a dent in something like protein, protein folding. Well, so there's a few things. I mean, I, I would say more broadly, if, if you think about so the health space, what I think is interesting is are these new platforms that are being developed and there are some privacy issues here, to be sure. But there are these new platforms that basically sort of allow people to um, you know, to provide their data in a way that's anonymized or what have you, uh, to sort of build databases that that could associate things like genotypes with phenotypes. Uh, so, for example, in the U.S., we have the, um, the uh, what is it called? Um, all of us, all of us. 
That's mm-hmm. the um, it's, it's this initiative. I think it started out in the I think it happened in the Obama administration, uh, but basically this initiative that uh, that's trying to obtain to get collect data from I think a hundred thousand or even a million people eventually uh, to, to associate the genotypes with phenotypes, and that's that's a great thing. You can just go in and sign up for it uh, online, and it's you know you, you get all these you get all these wonderful measurements taken that actually cost all the money for free, and you get ha- you get to have access to all your data as well. Mm-hmm. And, and that's that's something that's actually you know it, it sounds maybe surprising, but we're in dire need of because in, in the in the biomedical community right now everything is very fragmented. Each hospital has its own data, and for the most part, hospitals don't really share data with one another. So it's very difficult for researchers to be able to actually apply these wonderful developments in machine learning to things like uh, you know health. But but if if more people were to participate, and so sort of if we're able to kind of on a national level build databases that are, that again, sort of protect privacy, but also kind of expose important patterns, uh, then I think that could be a win-win. Yeah, you hope so. And we had a couple conversations with some, some brilliant women uh, over the NHS um, talking about, you know, how, how data sharing actually is, is the default uh, when you're born over there, which is interesting. And yeah. how that is now a really interesting case study compared to here, where it's it basically it's opt in here versus there it's it's opt out um and while they have a much more homogenous population and obviously much more a much smaller population you know what they're already able to start doing with with that data because it's um a much more comprehensive if not completely comprehensive swath of their of their population there yeah, absolutely. I mean, Iceland is probably the best example of this because they have this remarkable kind of ability to collect data on people. And it's just, like you said, and there's, the population is much more homogeneous. So you're actually able to kind of infer interesting relationship between, you know, within individuals in the population and so on. And, and to be honest, I mean, the, the, these things do raise important privacy issues. Um, but but it, what, what we're talking about in the context of the U.S., at least, I think it's, it's in some ways much simpler. We're, we're just asking for, for a lot less. It's not even... Because uh, mm-hmm. you, you don't have a homogeneous population, you're not you're not so much worried about being able to tell you know who's who's related to whom or that sort of thing. It's it's much more about these kind of disease associations that are that are very hard to very hard to do all right now because we just don't have enough data to actually to 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 discover these patterns. Do you think that we are at least making strides toward some serious advances in these places that it is worth some of the privacy trade offs that people are scared of? Is it something where you could say, like, look, I know it's scary, but it could be very, it could be so worth it in the near future? Are, are we close to that? Is that, is that a leg to stand on? So I would say two things. I mean, I, I, the, the, the the answer to your question, I think, is yes. I mean, I, I think we definitely um, there's there's definitely a lot to do, and I think we are at the cusp of of making some important some important discoveries based on the technologies we've, we've, we've sort of been developing over the last. Two decades. So I, I do think that I mean, you know, people have always been saying, oh, you know, true to cancer has got it on the corner or whatever, and it's, it's sort of never materialized. But but I, I I do think that the next 10, 20 years we will see sort of we will see sort of kind of really exciting and practical progress. Um, but but I, I, I I'm not sure that the premise is, is correct of, of your question. I don't actually think there are any sort of real privacy trade-offs. I think we could do this in a way that that is almost completely um I'm, I'm, so there are different versions of this but i think we can get 90 percent of the way there without sacrificing almost you know any of our privacy so so mm-hmm. and, and this is part of why you know i think much of the problem really has less to do with, with i mean i think people are often quite willing to share an anonymized way the problem mm-hmm. has more to do with different institutions different hospitals different research institutions sharing information uh, they tend to not want to do that. And that's why I think we need something like a national, and we, we do have this national effort now, uh, because, because that would sort of, by, by, by construction, ensure that data is actually being shared. Uh, so it's, 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 the problem is not even so much privacy, I think. It's, that, that's, it's just really sort of different, different groups kind of being very protective of the data they have, not because they're worried about patient privacy, but because they want to maintain their edge. So it's, it's, a, it's just like a selfish thing. Interesting. That's, yeah, that's it. That's a much more rational perspective. And I feel like from a consumer standpoint, it's less like I want to give up my data and more, you know, from, from Target to Home Depot to, to Yahoo, they see these data breaches and go, well, that's what fucking happens when I give up my data. Mm-hmm. And I think that is probably the, the scare point for more folks is like, well, shit, now if I'm going to start giving up my medical data, what happens when, when that gets lost? Um, 
obviously these companies are now every time that happens these hopefully i think these companies are doubling down more and more and more uh on, on security uh and and various locksteps for it but um i i can empathize with i can empathize with it um but also again can see the power of of how close we are on some of these things yeah, absolutely. And the issue, the trick thing, the tricky thing with that, with financial data, for example, is that it cannot be anonymized, right? So, uh, right. I think that's a, that's a, that's a big difference here. Is that, that the point is not to uh, is not to maintain something like your credit card score for like your health. You know, that that, that I think would be a bad thing. It, it's right. or, or at least it's unnecessary anyway. It, it's more is just to collect data in bulk and to be able to discover patterns, but without even being able to print, even in principle to work back, you know, who has what disease or, or that sort of thing. But that, that I think is unnecessary. And so it, it's, that's why I'm saying, I think we could do it in a way which, which really should not have any privacy sort of implications, at least, you know, 99% of the privacy questions or issues could be, could be resolved. Feels like we need more people like you to explain that point uh, <laughs> to folks, because I, I think that makes a lot more sense, which is like, we don't want your social security number. No, no, no absolutely. Right. Um, that's that's not not actually going to help us, you know. Yeah. But but see, it's, it's a bit complicated, right? Because if you're, for example, if you if you were to send your data to a consumer genetics company, that's a different calculation, right? Because they are, they are in fact interested in right. maintaining that association. So th- 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 this is, I mean, it, it sounds like I'm, I'm sort of beating a dead horse, but this is why I think some no, national please. effort is a bit different, right? Because if the intention from the get go is not to monetize this, but instead to say we 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 want to collect this data for research purposes, and so we're really going to do it in a way which maybe it's not particularly sort of useful for commercial applications. And so we'll, mm. we'll lose some edge, but mm-hmm. from, from the, from the kind of scientific side, we could do it in a way that's, that's, um, that, that safeguards the privacy concerns while at the same time being almost as good as having, you know, the, the full anonymized data there. Sure. So in, in your profession so far, but besides a deep mind showing up and, and blowing up your spot, what are the biggest obstacles you do run into in your job on sort of a day-to-day and a, and a long-term basis? We want people to understand it's not all roses over there you're, with your protein folding. No, no, absolutely not. And, and that's actually part of what made the DeepMind entry uh, sort of very interesting in a way, because I think it highlighted structural inefficiencies and structural problems in the way academic research is done. Um, so, so to answer your question, I mean, so w- w- one, one common problem that I think almost all academic researchers complain about is access to computing resources. We're actually, you know, relative to companies, we have a lot, uh, a lot more limited access to compute to be able mm-hmm. to sort of carry out these very large computations. And, and this may sound like a very sort of technical issue, but in fact, it's, it's become really sort of the bloodline of computational research. Uh, and, and, and frankly, computer science has, has been having to deal with this for the last maybe 10 years because there's been this almost exodus of, of academic researchers from, from universities to companies Precisely because of the resources that they're able to amass or to leverage in, mm-hmm. in companies, and I think we're we're beginning to see that in biology as well. So, so that's something that we sort of run into every day, and it's and it's it's something that I think will require again something more of an international effort at you know the level of the Department of Energy or the National Institute of Health to sort of say, okay, this is a serious issue, and we need to be able to provide these resources so that academic research can can sort of compete at the highest levels uh, with, with with industry. That's one thing. The other thing I would say is, is just sort of software infrastructure. Uh, the, the way the way sort of um, academic incentives are are structured, uh, people are incentivized to create novel novel pieces of software or novel research ideas, but they're not incentivized to create robust software that actually works and that people want to use. And so this there's this very strange thing where you know academic software is sort of synonymous with being sort of very fragile and you know practically useless and hard to use. Mm-hmm. And that holds the field back. There's no reason for it to be this way. Um, and again, sort of going back to DeepMind, uh, what they have, they understand, they, they understand this issue very well. And they've built sort of a cadre of software engineers that, uh, that, that are able to go in and sort of you know, engineer things that are very robust and that, that can scale and that allow their researchers to actually operate at a very high level. Uh, while academic researchers, on the other hand, are sort of left in the dust because we, we just don't have access to this human resource. Um, so, so these are issues that I think um, the, the scientific enterprise as, as a whole and the funding agencies, agencies in particular can pay a lot more attention to, to, sort of, to, to, to sort of restructure the way science is done so that academia is a, is a healthier place. Well, and that's what happened with, with Uber and Carnegie Mellon seven, eight years ago now, right? Because they just completely decimated that, 
entire department by hiring everyone for their self-driving car unit. Yeah, absolutely. And, and, you, and it's not just, I mean, that's, when it, that's probably the most extreme example. But frankly, almost all the top elite universities, I mean, they've really suffered, especially in the CS departments, the computer science departments, precisely for this reason. Yeah, it, 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 it's an issue. So things to fix. Brian, go ahead. Let, let's get into some action steps here, all right? We, uh, uh, we always want to uh, end this with things that our listeners can do to su- support your mission, actual, actual actions uh, that they can take. Uh, and we like, to, um, we like to say that they can use their voice, their vote, and their dollar. So let's get into that. Um, let's start with their, uh, with their voice. Um, what, what are big, actionable, and specific questions that, that we should all be asking uh, of our representatives uh, uh, in an effort to support you? Yeah, I mean, to be honest, my answer will be very general. I mean, I think basic science is important and, and, and we ought to fund it more. And, and I mean, the, 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 there's, there's a slight distinction there where I think there is arguably, you know, a reasonable amount of funding. There can always be more for kind of clinical or for biomedical research. But, but the kind of basic questions uh, tend to be sort of left behind. And th- that, I think, is very short-sighted because ultimately the, the, the long-term breakthroughs, things like CRISPR, you know, we talked about that earlier, uh, have come from people asking very fundamental questions that don't necessarily, uh, at least initially, have any connection to sort of practical practical matters. So I, I would say, you know, tell people, tell, tell your representatives to, to, support, to support investment in, in basic science and to, to actually, you know, increase funding for basic science because it, and, and science funding in general because it's, it's one of the few things where I think um, it, the, the, return of investment, the return on investment is almost guaranteed. It's one of those things where, um, of all the things you can spend your money on, I think, I think research is one of those fairly safe bets. It, we've gotten that answer a lot, which is just yeah. tell them to support uh, basic science funding um, because you, it's almost like you just never know what you're going to get out of it. There's no wrong that can be done there. Right. Yeah, it, 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 seems, it might seem a little bit kind of intuitive, but, but it, and historically, this has not been the case that, that uh, basic science has had sort of anemic funding, like the anemic funding that we see now. Uh, but, but there has been this shift, and particularly in the last decade, I would say, especially in the life sciences, uh, where you know, practically everything you do now has to cure cancer. And I think that's just, that, that's really sort of short-sighted. It, 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 I'm not entirely sure whether the forces at play that, that sort of uh, led to this, to, to this situation. Um, and, and, and partly, obviously, it's a lot easier to sort of justify the taxpayer saying, oh, I'm going to cure disease, and I'm going to you know, discover some, some new form of bacteria. Uh, but, but the point is to, to kind of try to, com- to communicate this, this, this truth that, that progress does seem to come from asking basic questions. That, that, so the more we know about, about how the world, wo- how the, the world works, uh, the more we're able to make progress in, in very applied areas of, of research. Yeah, I think that makes a lot of sense. Yeah. And I guess, yeah, I guess if we can, as we move on to vote here, we can kind of, you know, there's a similarity there, you know, vote for people who are supporting this and, 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 uh, but are there specific, pers- you know, scientific perspectives that are missing from our, uh, elected representatives? Well, yeah, I was going to say, I mean, I do think uh, when it comes to voting, I, I would actually say, so, so, you know, vote, vote for people who are scientifically aware and right. progressive <laughs> and so on, and the, the obvious, the obvious things that, that need not be said. Uh, but I, I would also say, actually, I mean, you know, if, if you have a if you have a scientist running in your district, uh, give them a serious serious look because I think scientists as a community are bringing a certain perspective, uh, including to policymaking, that that may be quite fresh, uh, that, that that's just quite different than than say somebody who's who's you know spent their entire career in politics or or in, or in business. Um, and I think in, in, as a whole, scientists are sort of very much underrepresented in in, oh, yeah. in, in Congress. So, so I, and it's not, it's not just about them being pro-science. I mean, that's one aspect of it, but I also just about them having a different, uh, sort of a more evidence-based perspective on things. I think they're, they're less likely to be sort of driven by, um, you know, sort of emotional currents and, and more likely to be sort of thoughtful about how to approach a given problem. And I think that's a good thing to have in general. I mean, I would like to scream that from the rooftops. It's a, yeah. It seems <laughs> like, duh, right? It's insane that there are, that the number of scientists that are in office, is, it's crazy low. I forgot what this, you know, the stat is, but it, it's just mind-blowing. Well, and it's great that people are in their jobs doing science, but at the same time, like we had a conversation um, last fall with a gentleman, uh, Sean Caston, who's now representative Sean Caston. That's right, Illinois. From Illinois, who ran for office and part of his platform was like, look, I've built clean energy. Like that was my job. Yeah. I, my perspective is, is inherently extremely valuable in the conversations we're going right. to be having over the next five, 10 years. 
because I've actually done this and I can speak it and I can understand it. I don't have to have like science 101 come to my office to tell me how, how a windmill works. Yeah. And it shouldn't be all those people, but the more of it, you know, look at Representative Underwood, uh, the, the young black nurse uh, who, who made it in. And we're trying to fix healthcare. And, and that perspective is certainly super helpful. Someone who's in it and, and doing it every day. So yeah, and, and and I think I think especially too in our very polarized environment, right? the, the problem is I think we've we've just become too emotionally kind of caught up in the moment, and we're not able. I mean, I, this sounds a bit cliched, but it's true. I mean, I think we're just not really talking to one another uh, across across yeah. the, the ideological divide, and so it's it, it's not even about right versus. I mean, that's one issue, right versus left, but it's just that it's, it's a matter of being able to kind of take a step back and just sort of rationally think about something and not get caught up. In the, in the tribal kind of warfare right, that, that our sure. countries attended descended into, so so that uh, that alone, I think, ju- just ju- just by itself, would be a worthwhile thing to sort of have have in Congress. And, and I should say, I think after twenty sixteen, I mean, my sense is, you know, at least within my circle, I feel like there's, there's been a, a lot a lot more scientists have, are, are sort of getting interested in this. So that's great to, to see more people getting engaged in, in policy and thinking, okay, maybe maybe we can comp- contribute in this way. Instead of just doing research, and so that's, uh, I think, I think there there is a positive uh, sort of development in that direction, but I think it needs to go much, much further. Yeah, it was. Yeah. A, it's a nice start, and one of the good things that came out of uh, that election is just how more fired up people were, especially uh, scientists. Yeah, absolutely. we work with a great group called Three Fourteen Action and Three Fourteen Pi. They they work uh, explicitly to support scientists and things like that getting into office seeing the huge Darth that exists there. Yeah. Um, Mohammed, what about, uh, what about money? What can, uh, what can our listeners do um, with, with their dollars? Anything specific, you know, outside of the box where, uh, where we could, where we could send some, some cash. Hmm. That's an interesting question. I actually, well, I mean, so there are organizations. Uh, I, I don't, I don't know that they're taking donations, but I, I thought I should call them out because it's, I think they're doing very good work. Uh, please, one, please. Of, one of which is, is the uh, the Chan Zuckerberg initiative, and and you know I mentioned earlier this whole problem of so so if you're not familiar with them, they're they're sort of this part research institute, part philanthropic organization f- founded by Mark Zuckerberg and, and his wife uh, Priscilla Chen, and and one of the interesting things I think they they sort of zeroed zeroed in on is this question of of being able to provide uh, sort of software uh, software development software expertise as kind of a general good to the scientific community with no strings attached. Uh, I think they understand the value. Of having uh, that that sort of resource be be, be sort of publicly available, um, I don't I don't know if they take donations, but I think it's I think we need we need sort of more organizations like them that are so, that sort of support science without with, while sort of being kind of aware of the structural inefficiencies that, that it has and sort of trying to actually be sort of intelligent about how to address these specific inefficiencies. I think one of my friends runs PR for them, and uh, yeah, they do they do some really interesting stuff over there. Yeah, cool, awesome. Awesome, awesome. We can't thank you enough for your for your time here today, Mohammed. Uh, we just have a just a few more questions for you. If you can think of um, anybody else, uh, and, and you can send us to us later. But we always love getting recommendations from our current guests about other groundbreaking, world changing folks out there that are we would love to talk to. That our folks, our listeners, would love to hear from. If you have any ideas on that, we would we would love to have them. There's so many interesting people. Can I can I can I send you a list later? Yeah, <laughs> absolutely. Please. Yeah, for sure. That'd be wonderful. Yeah. I Absolutely, you can't it. put Brian on that list. We've already talked to Brian. He, yeah, I'm always on this thing. He, it doesn't count. Are you ready for a lightning round, Muhammad? Sure. Nice. Um, it's it's not a lightning round, but <laughs> we we called it that because I haven't changed it in 72 episodes. Uh, Muhammad, okay. When when was the first time in your life when you realized you had the power of change or the power to do something meaningful? I think 13, 13 years old. You want to know the context? Yes, Hell please. Yeah. Hit us. <laughs> This is going to sound strange, but I was in a, I was in a, so I, I was trying to get my green card at the time. I was still, yeah, you know, I was young. Obviously my parents were trying to get a green card because we had just immigrated to this country. And, uh, and, and the, where are you co- from? I'm sorry, Mohammed. Yeah, yeah, sure. I'm, I'm from Iraq originally. Okay. And, uh, at the time that the, 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 the setup was, you actually have to line up in the middle of the night, starting at 10 PM, uh, in, in front of the, the, so the immigration office to, to wait, to get, to get, to get in for your interview. So it's just a very bizarre thing where you have to line up, you know, from 10 p.m. and the interview is usually like at 10 a.m. So you're spending like 12, 12 hours, you know, in the middle of the, Jesus. the yeah, it's, it's really stupid. But anyway, so as I was there, and I think around 3 or 4 a.m. we decided to go to sort of this nearby McDonald's, and, and there were you know a bunch of people there, you know, people from sort of low 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 means, um, 
and and it just sort of struck me that at, at that moment that there's so much that that I could I could sort of do to sort of fix the, these problems that that, that that I see around me. I mean, I mean, the, the, I saw at the time so all these homeless people at McDonald's, and I just it sort of it's, it's and, and you know I kind of contrasted it with my with my situation, and of course my situation was infinitely better. But it's just it's sort of the fact that I was there in the middle of the night, seeing these people kind of opened up this 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 kind of perspective that I hadn't seen before. It's almost this world that I didn't know existed. And, and that just kind of made me feel like I ought to dedicate my life to something that, that is worthwhile, that, that, I, that, I should, that I should try to do something with my life. That's pretty awesome. Yeah, that's pretty um, wonderful. I, well, I think it's insane that that's the process uh, for the interview. I'm glad that you had that moment because clearly a lot of folks are going to benefit from it. I hope so. Yeah. Mohammed, uh, along those lines, who is someone in your life that has positively impacted your work in the past six months? There's a fellow here um, at, at, at where I work. Um, he's, a, he's, a, he's, a, he's a professor. Uh, his name is Peter Soger. And um, he's just really been, a, over the last six months, even, even longer, I would say he's just been a really wonderful mentor. Uh, he's been somebody who sort of, um, I think, kind of believed in the kind of science that I was doing, even though, even though it was very risky. And sort of helped support support me in this enterprise, and even though when he didn't need to, it was sort of a, very much a bet on you know because the work I do is, is quite different than the work he does. So it was very much kind of a bet on the on the person as opposed to you know anything else. And and I think uh, I would say you know without without that support, I wouldn't be where I am. So I, I, that's how that's who I would say. That's pretty rad. Great answer, uh, Mohammed. What do you do when you feel overwhelmed? Which everybody talks about self-care these days. When, when things get to be too much, you go on a run, play video games, eat a bunch of ice cream. What's your, what's your ball game? He doesn't need suggestions. So <laughs> I think I ought to... I, <laughs> playing video games would be a good idea. I don't actually do it nearly as much as I, I, as I ought to. I, 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 you know, I, I was a gamer, but I, I can't, click, I can't call, out, call, out, call myself that anymore. Probably right today, it's, it's going to be more like reading or, or just listening to a book on Audible or just, just reading a book. Uh, j- j- just thinking about something else. I actually, so strangely, I find that when I'm engaged with someone else's problem very seriously, that that, that helps me relax because I, I I love solving problems, but but my own problems tend to stress me out. So when I'm when I'm somehow focused on someone else's, I get to do what I like without having to um, without having to have that stress. So that, that's a little bit different than reading the books. Those are two things, I guess: reading books and solving someone else's problem. I love that. My wife and I are both writers and she always talks about how her favorite thing to do is to work on other people's shit because it means she doesn't have to do her shit. Right, exactly. Love it. Speaking of books, you mentioned books. If you could Amazon Prime one book to Donald Trump, what book would it be? <laughs> Anything. We've had everything I mean, from crown yeah, books I mean, to the Constitution. You know, I, I don't know if he'll, he'll benefit from it. I mean, I, I would say maybe a better, better Angels of Our Nature. Uh, just mm. because I think it's sort of it's such a rational rational take on things, um, a rationalist take of, take on things. But I, I don't know if it'll if it'll make a dent. Uh, <laughs> why, why do you feel that way? <laughs> what do you mean? <laughs> but but it, but it's it's I think I think it's a, well I think it's a book that a lot of people should read because it's, it's even if the if not all the facts are right I think it's it's a good way of, of, of it's a it's a good way of thinking it's a good way to sort of train your mind and I think that's a, that's a good thing to, to have that's that's by Steve Pinker by the way yeah that's a good one hey uh, last question uh, anything uh, else you would like to say to any way you want to use this uh, this podcast to speak truth to power last things to our listeners yeah I mean look I think I think the the future can be very bright. I, I I wouldn't I don't I don't want to go out on a limb and say it will be bright. I don't I don't know that that's true. But I, I do think we are living in, in sort of very transformative times. And I think you know the challenges are great, and, and sometimes it feels overwhelming. But I, I do think that if we sort of do this right, we stand we stand to gain a, quite a lot. And, and like like I started out in, in, in this in this discussion, I, I feel like we we really can we're at this precipice where we can almost define redefine what it means to be humans and, and who we are and what what our future is as a species. And that's that's incredibly exciting. It's, it's an opportunity that, that I think few other humans have had you know, throughout our existence. So it's, you know, I'm optimistic at the opportunity, at least. And, and I hope that we, well, I, speaking of better angels, I hope that our, angel, that our better angels will, will come to the fore and that, that, they, they will, that we will see our way through, through this time. I love it. Hopefully it's a message we can print on billboards everywhere. Yeah. Mohammed, where can our listeners follow you online? 
probably Twitter is the best place to follow me online. I have a blog post as well, uh, but that tends to be a bit more technical and I don't update it all that frequently. But my Twitter <laughs> on uh, M O L Qureshi uh, is, is probably the best place to follow me. Awesome. awesome. We will Very good. put that in the show notes. And, and then, we'll sorry, make- one more question. Are you able to make a deep fake for me of Quinn telling me that he loves me and I'm the best? Nope. We're not doing that right now, Brian. <laughs> not gonna, oh, got it. Okay. Nope. That's, That's not right. what he's here for. No problem. <laughs> great, great, great. Thought I'd ask. Um, Mohammed, yep, just sneak it in. Yeah. Mohammed, uh, thank you uh, so much, obviously, for being here today uh, with all your travel fun. I'm sure you're like not even unpacked. Uh, and I'm obviously, yeah. oh, God, I, I'm, I can't. It's the worst. <laughs> I'm half asleep right now. But... Perfect. Uh, perfect. Oh, I'm half asleep every day. Um, Brian doesn't get up before 10. Uh, <sighs> thank you so much for, for, for your time and obviously for, for all you're doing every day in the and the perspective you you bring to it, I I think, and I hope we can all learn from it again. We've we've got some serious shit going on, but um, as you alluded to, man, if we if we can get past some of it, there's just there there's a pretty magical future out there, and and hopefully it's a lot more equitable and and just for for more folks out there as well. I, I think so, and I hope so. And, and thank you very much for having me. I enjoyed this conversation as well. Okay, um, awesome. Well, Thank you so much. Uh, and uh, hopefully we will talk to you again soon once you fix and solve the whole thing. No biggie. <laughs> Sounds good. Thanks to our incredible guest today. And thanks to all of you for tuning in. We hope this episode has made your commute or awesome workout or dishwashing or fucking dog walking late at night that much more pleasant. As a reminder, please subscribe to our free email newsletter at importantnotimportant.com. It is all the news most vital to our survival as a species. And you can follow us all over the internet. You can find us on Twitter at importantnotimp. Just so weird. Also on Facebook and Instagram at Important Not Important, Pinterest and Tumblr, the same thing. So check us out, follow us, share us, like us, you know the deal. And please subscribe to our show wherever you listen to things like this. And if you're really fucking awesome, rate us on Apple Podcasts. Keep the lights on. Thanks. Please. <laughs> and you can find the show notes from today right in your little podcast player and at our website, importantnotimportant.com. Thanks to the very awesome Tim Blaine for our jamming music, to all of you for listening, and finally, most importantly, to our moms for making us. Have a great day. Thanks, guys. Thanks.